much for each of you. We will convene now to prepare for uh, boys and girls to go to Explorers and Pathfinders class and journey is sweet. The journey is sweet. How many of you today could just say, my journey with Jesus is getting sweeter every day? Amen? Amen. Thank you so much. Today, open your Bibles wherever you are, whatever translation of God's Word you're using today. Fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. We read through the 11 verses last Sunday in a segment. It's really part, today's really part four of our worship focus in this month of September, but it's part two of uh, Revelation 4. So I wanted to, uh, this today is what I, I call a an authentic worship awakening. I really believe that what we read last Sunday and what we will read parts of today gives us the template for an awakening that obviously is so greatly needed. What's striking, though, is that the timelessness, the power, the magnitude of this scene that the Lord Jesus opens up for the Apostle John on the island of Patmos after his initial encounter with the risen Lord when John falls at his feet as though dead, literally just in a situation similar to what we read in Isaiah chapter 6 where the Bible says, in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne, and his, the, the train of his robe filled the temple. And as Isaiah describes that, his response is one that the Hebrew language expresses in terms of disintegration. The English translation he is Isaiah saying, I am undone, I'm undone. Means The word means to come apart at the seams and literally falling before the Lord and understanding far more than the mind could conceive the, 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 the drastic contrast between the holiness of God and our, our essential fallibility and our sinfulness. And then John, in a similar way, Though seeing the Lord Jesus after the resurrection and this resurrection appearance, this last recorded resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus to the Apostle John in a manner in which, like he brought the Apostle Paul into his calling on the Damascus Road, when Paul, then named Saul of Tarsus, is blinded by the awesome revelation of the risen Jesus. Now, John, on the island of Patmos, at least 20 years, maybe even 25 years later, is now uh, at the feet of Jesus. And like Isaiah, I'm sure John could say, I'm disintegrating. Who am I to deserve the visible appearance of the Lord Jesus? And he lays his hand upon him, his right hand, and says, fear not. John, I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of hell and of death. Now that opening revelation shows us 
a key aspect of what we talked about last week that's a common error, but it needs to be addressed because it really affects how we see the entire book of Revelation. And that it is, is that it is not a series of visions or revelations, but it is, in fact, in the very first verse of Revelation, the apocalypse, the singular revelation, the revealing of the Lord Jesus. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which he gave to his servants so that they would be prepared for what is to come. And in preparing for what is to come in the far distant future, we meet the real meaning of another passage in John's writing, 1 John chapter 3, we we meet the real meaning of the purifying hope. Now, as you open to the fourth chapter of Revelation, think about that as a way to consider how authentic worship affects our lives today in a dramatic daily way because of the certainty of what God has made known about a distant future. When we hear in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Here we have the revealing of the summit peak of a place of rarefied air, we might say, a a, a rarefied atmosphere, a place where the Apostle John, after having already been lifted from his feet with the fear not in chapter 1, and then being given that that, um, awesome introduction to the Lord Jesus walking among the candlesticks in the messages to the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3, Now the scene dramatically shifts into heaven itself and it remains there until through chapter 10 and then from chapter 11 on it toggles back and forth between heaven and earth. Now in this opening scene, the curtain of eternity, the veil that is so impenetrable to our natural eye that the That the hymn writer in the early 19th century who gave us that timeless classic, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. And then in the second verse brought clarity to that dramatic contrast we saw with Isaiah and now with John between who we are and the magnitude of Almighty God. When the hymn writer Reginald Heber wrote that verse that says, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. Only you are holy. Only you are holy and perfect in love and power and purity. So here we have John encountering this this understanding in a way maybe one of the reasons that that hymn written in about 1815, 1816 is still so uh, recognizable and so 
timeless in its impact uh, that you could start the song and everybody could sing almost all of it together from memory is because what we get in Revelation chapter 4 is a template of an awakening of our hearts to what it really means to walk and live and respond to God as a worshiper. Worship, in other words, as, as, we, as we look at this uh, orientation today, worship is a shift of focus from our preoccupation with ourselves to the magnitude of who God is. Anything that is essentially self-focused cannot be authentic worship. In fact, it is possible, it's possible to slip even into a kind of a cultural idolatry if we perceive of worship mostly in terms of what appeals to our taste and our preferences. So there's a sense in which there's a, a beautiful balance in Scripture. There's an exquisite blend throughout the Bible in how God uses this wonderful gift of music in all of its diverse expressions and potential to give us tools and resources to facilitate a grateful response to the creator who designed us. And yet there's a tension we see throughout the Bible in various, in various ways that shows us that the human mind and heart left to itself, what the hymn writer Reginald Hebert called the eye of sinful man, is continuously drawn and attracted, magnetically attracted, to that which, which brings to the human mind and heart a sense of self-exaltation. So it's really striking to understand that Worship itself needs to be rediscovered, not in the sense that we don't know what it is, but in the sense that the Bible has given us in this opening, the, the veil of heaven, a clearer insight into how totally life-giving, refreshing, revitalizing, enriching, and enlivening it is to worship God, worship Almighty God, and and I think it's captured so beautifully, of course. In a, in, and I'm usually I translate, go to these modern translations, but there's a there's a timelessness for me even in these words of that 11th verse. So so if you would just uh, think of it this way, and um, oh, actually I did put a modern translation in the box here. So read it with me aloud. You are worthy. This is how the 11 verses concludes of this chapter. Let's read it together. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Here we find, at the very heart of this authentic worship, is a word actually that in the English language does relate to the English word worship, and that is the word worthy. The English word worthy 
is related to, as it develops in the etymology of language, worth-ship in Old English was what worship was, or how it was expressed. Translating the Greek expression of the prostrating before God, the giving over unto God, the awareness, even in a, an intentional act of worship, that every act of worship we engage in is a, is a kind of a, a microcosm of that dramatic disintegration that John experienced when he fell at his feet as one dead. It is like when we come to give our worship to God, we are acknowledging in every song, in every expression, in every praise, in every prayer, his infinitely wise and glorious goodness and our infinitely deep need for him. And in a word, we're saying, you are worthy. You are the one worthy of my energy, of my song, of my voice, of my time, of my resources, of my attitudes. You are worthy. But I know that sometimes people doubt or wonder why it's so necessary to actually sing, actually get involved in worship in a physical way. And, and this also is pictured in this, in this wonderful scene in heaven. But before we leave that, I thought uh, that 11th verse, I thought that it's a nice example of what is true in, in so much of the 22 chapters of the apocalypse. And that is that there is a, uh, an intentional, in some cases an allusion, in other cases not an illusion, but an allusion alluding to Old Testament events. In fact, in the in the 404 verses of the book of Revelation, there are over 260 direct references to Old Testament events, images, symbols, or allusions. Those things that, that bring to the mind, by suggestion, a pattern or a template of the Old Testament. And, and we're going to see one of those in a moment. But I, I thought that it was striking that Genesis 1.31, I just put a phrase from that there, the very first chapter of Genesis is a classic example of this. From the very opening chapter of the Torah, we have the declaration, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And the upright man, the upright woman, the... The, um, the perpendicular people, let's call them, the, the pedestrians on the planet. The first man, the first woman, walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. We're living, visible, male and female expressions of the meaning of what it is to be a worshiper. They walked with God. They were aware of his awesome, transcendent presence. They lived and moved and had their being among the beauty and the splendor and the, the diversity of what he created. And by doing so, they were, they were fully living out a worshipful existence. So I think it's, it's very interesting to get a, a sense of that and why it is that this dramatic fall, this, this dramatic uh, 
break of the action away from the seven churches of chapter 2 and 3. And now the door is open in heaven. John hears again the voice of the Lord as he had heard back in chapter 1, verse 12, when he turned back to see the sound of the trumpet and then saw the Lord. And here he is again hearing the voice like a trumpet. It struck me as I thought about the island of Patmos certainly was no picnic. The island of Patmos was maybe maybe more bleak and desolate. We might think of it as a as a uh, first century Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> this is this is not where you want to be. This <laughs> this is a say geographically kind of a a basalt type of of rock formation type of of island just off the coast of Greece where the Roman emperors used as a penal colony. Many just stayed there and languished there until they died a natural death. Others were others were um, treated very brutally. And there are various traditions about what may have happened to John and that, that can't be verified historically. There are various, uh, uh, various uh, legends. But, but what we do know from the text is that it was, in John, it was John's habit to be, to be in the, on the Lord's day, he was in the spirit, it says, and, and we know from all of his writings that John carried with him that vivid memory of having leaned close to the Lord's chest at the Last Supper and how how vividly and almost palpably you sense in the in the three epistles of John the, the, the depth of his love and his intensest devotion to the Lord Jesus. And so he writes in 1 John chapter 3 that, Behold, beloved, how, how awesome it is to know that the Father's love for us is as great as it is. And whoever has this hope of seeing him knowing that one day we will see him as he is. And when we see him as he is, we will be made like him. And in 1 John 3, 3, he says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. John lived in that anticipation. And yet, here, one who knew him so well, Again, there's a similarity with Isaiah. Isaiah was considered to be one of the most godly, one of the most esteemed, literally a, a spiritual statesman of his time. We might say the Billy Graham of his generation. And, and yet, when Isaiah sees the Lord, instantly he is collapsing on his face in honor and adoration. John, in a similar way anticipated, loved the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet, think of this, a trumpet blast of awakening is given to John to bring his attention to what God wants to show him. And there's a takeaway for me in this, in that if you think about the island of Patmos, there were not many distractions on the island of Patmos. Not too many things to be wholly consuming of your time and your attention. If the beloved John needed that awakening, a trumpet blast, how much more do we? The reason I say this 
stretching the, 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 the reality of what John probably experienced a bit for emphasis is that the trumpet blast of Revelation 4 should remind us that we're not naturally geared toward worship. We are geared toward pursuing what we want, what we perceive will satisfy us, and all of God's gifts and graces are part of the blessing of walking with God, but we don't discover them in the richness and the fullness that that we need until we realize what worship is. That worship is ascribing the worthiness to the Lord God who created all this beauty so that we recapture, in a sense, a measure, a taste of Eden. We recover, in a sense, that walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So I think in this chapter, if you look in your Bible at verse 3 through 7, and just read this part with me, where it says, He who sat there on the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne, around the throne was the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. In these astounding appearances of that which is around the throne and the rainbow around the throne that I couldn't read on my screen, we see the captivating reality of worship in heaven dawns upon John. And what I'm really struck by is God uses an object lesson like John to to emphasize, really to help us dramatically see that we all need an awakening to this reality of worship. In, In John's experience, it is as if God allows this dawning fact of the transcendent magnitude of his glory to captivate John while he's in the spirit on the Lord's day and in doing so, as odd and foreign to our natural thinking as these descriptions are, for example, the four living creatures, it is showing us that the Holy Spirit gave us this opening of heaven to draw us as readers into this direct invitation from God. And that's why last week I thought it would be helpful if we think of this chapter in terms of the four aspects of how John sees this. He, he, he sees it in, in, in a way that it helps us to realize 
that he sees the one seated on the throne. And note in your Bible, if you go back to that second verse, that there is a very moving and poignant understatement in this text, the depth understatement of being God. After this I looked, and once I was in the Spirit, and a throne stood in heaven, and this one seated on the throne. How is God referred to in that second verse of Revelation 4 as O-N-E? One. One. And how moving it is to realize that the one is the audience of one for whom our highest aspirations and worship are aimed. So on his throne we see John emphasizing the radiance of who he is, the splendor of God. Then the text deals with circumstances around the throne. And, and there, are, there are really, as we think of that which is around the throne, it is almost as if there is a kind of a, a convergence of voices that models what the church is called to be and to do in all of its diversity and wherever it functions all around the world. John Phillips, in a great summary in his book, Exploring the Future, describes it this way. There's a majesty about this throne that John told of a sea of glass, of an emerald rainbow encircling the throne, of thunderings and lightnings. He describes the endless expanse of the Holy One and the adoring worship of the elders. It is all solemn, impressive, and eloquently indicative of the judgment to come. But as he sees this, his eyes are drawn to the glimpse of the dignity of God's sovereign order in the universe. The angels, the cherubim, the four and twenty elders, all are there. He describes them that we too might catch a glimpse of the dignity of divine government. And sense something of its solemnity. In this powerful scene, then, we are invited in. <laughs> so around the throne, in many ways, these converging voices reflect to us the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. And as we look at it and realize this is the place that Jesus was talking about in John 14 when he said, when I go away, I will prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now John is getting, is immersing in the reality of that place then there's a, a third expression in the text that talks about the part from his throne, the, the thunderings and the lightnings, the indications of coming judgment are there that anticipate the dark and very complex cataclysmic events that will unfold in those subsequent chapters as if for John to know that from the throne of God, righteous vindication of the holiness of the Creator is going to be manifest in the earth and every 
thing that happens for the ultimate good and glory of the creating of a new heaven and a new earth is, be, is, is secure in the heart of the saints of God because they can know it is from his throne. And then finally, the chapter ends, as we've already read in that 11th verse, on the, the accent on the 420 elders who are bowing down before the Lord God, casting down their golden crowns in response to these mysterious four living creatures who surround the throne with eyes all over their being, manifesting this perfect omniscience of Almighty God. There is not a speck of this universe that he doesn't see with crystal clear accuracy. This is the God to whom we bring our troubled minds. This is the God to whom we bring our disappointment. This is the God to whom we bring our questions and our needs. As if to show in all eternity these, these mysterious living creatures that the ultimate act for which all of creation finds its highest fulfillment is to say to the one on the throne, you are worthy. You are worthy. Now again, to me, the dramatic contrast here is given partly because our inner orientation is different. If John on the island of Patmos, if, if the beloved closest to the heart of the Savior in the Last Supper needed to have his eyes opened to the magnitude of worship, how much more to the redeemed people of God in our generation, how much more does this church need to have an awakening to worship? How much more do our lives, our families, how much more do we need an awakening to the fact that he's, he reigns supremely, powerfully, magnificently in his glory? Reminds me of a, of a statement that's stuck in my brain now for over 20 years. A great, in the book, No Place for Truth, Dr. David F. Wells describing the deterioration of what had happened in, in that era of the 90s in, in uh, many aspects of evangelical movements. And he was talking really about the failure to understand that it's not just individual Bible verses or individual Bible truths that shape a disciple-making congregation, but it is the total understanding that comes from a biblical worldview. And he illustrated it in different ways, but in the process, he talked about the fact that the only alternative to a biblical worldview is a self-driven, self-saturated, self-oriented, and self-directed attempt to make sense out of the contradictions of the universe around us. And then he, he, he laid this, he, he put this, uh, this flaming torch of truth in there, and I loved it. Because he said, the self, the self in all of us, the self is a canvas too small, too cramped to contain the largeness of biblical truth. In other words, I cannot, by working with the equipment of my natural self, 
I cannot even conceive of what real worship is. The only way I can really conceive of what real worship is is when it comes to me from in the way that is dramatically shown in Revelation 4 of the trumpet voice of the Lord like a trumpet saying the door is open like the voice of Jesus to this common Samaritan village woman that we saw two weeks ago when he said if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for water you would have asked me and I would have given you living water and then again I love that part where she says in John 4 sir give me this water that I may not drink thirst again and John here is saying yes Lord open that door so when we go into the, 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 the fullness of what John sees, if you go back to chapter 3, then you see this, this one seated on the throne, the, the deft, understated language there shows us an awesome awareness that is far greater than words can describe. And there's no doubt that probably John would have called to mind as he, as he became aware, I'm sure as he got his wits about him, he, this could have gone on for a long time, for him to think about this is the very throne that he would have read about as a young Jewish boy in the synagogue where Jeremiah talked about that throne, remember that? And that would have been, that would have been Jeremiah living around 600 years before Christ, so this would be at least 670 or 80 years ago that Jeremiah, in the depth of a very incredibly difficult life and ministry and calling, where Jeremiah lived in a time in which very little of what he prophesied could he verify. He was simply the oracle of God and was warned early in his ministry, they will not listen to you, but tell them anyway. That's like, okay, Lord, you know, it's like I'm showing up for duty. You know, this is Reveille. This is a roll call. Uh, you're going to go out. You're going to preach. You're going to proclaim, you're going to show my purpose to my people, you're going to call them to repent, and you can hear a young preacher saying, yeah, that's right, yeah, absolutely, praise God. <laughs> and he says, but they're not going to listen to you. <laughs> and you're, But I want your face to be set like a flint, because it isn't you, Jeremiah, this is about. It is my word like a fire that burns up the chaff, my word like a hammer that breaks the rock, my word that every heart of every Israelite needs. So in the midst of his discouragement, Jeremiah does what we all should do. He says, and he does it with certain uh, a certain amount of unvarnished, plain-spoken honesty. Lord, how did I get into this? In chapter 20 of Jeremiah, he says, I wish I'd just, whoever announced my birth to my father should have been shot at dawn. I mean, he, he was that down. But here in the 17th chapter of Jeremiah, he says, a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. And here's a guy who had not even the faintest amount of biblical truth insight that later John would have. And it kind of brings that, I mentioned the kind of the sparse language in, a, in chapter 4, verse 3 earlier, and 
and, and, and it's, it's so striking. We just go back and read it. I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. There is that, that understatement to me accents in a very powerful way what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.15 when he spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ as our king and then said that he is the one who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen nor can see. And here in Revelation 4, 2, we're being shown as if somebody took you on a tour and said, okay, come right on in, and now you're going to see the throne where the one sits there. Would you say with me, the one, the one, the one. The fourth verse, if you keep your Bible open there, brings us to something that has never appeared anywhere else in the Bible, a sight never beheld in Scripture prior to the Apocalypse of John. Now, not the part about the living creatures. That We've seen that in, in Isaiah chapter 6 and, um, and in Ezekiel chapter 1, where the uh, vision the Lord gives Ezekiel is of a slightly different uh, picture or scene of the seraphim where they are flaming upon upon wheels within wheels that move dramatically and rapidly in all directions, showing the magnitude of God sovereignly over the earth, and yet never before have these 24 elders shown up. And let's look at that in the text again because you see there that in the fourth verse there were 24 thrones and Seated around the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And it's almost as if what we have here is, is like, geometrically like concentric circles. In the midst of the throne, the glory, the indescribable, unapproachable light of the one who sits on the throne. Surrounded, surrounded by a, a rainbow. Like an emerald, that rainbow described like almost like a, a halo around the throne. Then the crowned elders seated around the throne. And it's one of these places where clearly the Lord Jesus is giving us insight into how all of heaven has been prepared for generations for the arrival of the redeemed because these 24 elders in eternity seem to be the, the fulfillment of a pattern that God gave David in 1 Chronicles 24. After that time of preparing for that unforgettable change in Israel when they had conquered all of the surrounding enemies and obstacles, and yet David would not be permitted to build that temple he dreamed of because he'd been a man of war. And we have that phase where we have the tabernacle of David, the tent of David, the temporary dwelling where the order of worship to the Lord God would be established. And David, in, in 1 Chronicles 23, says the reason for this order that will be there is this. The Lord God has given rest to his people and he dwells in Jerusalem forever. So he establishes an order of 24 kings of elders that serve on a circuit of 288 people involved in 
two-week segment of service in the magnitude of bringing worship to God in the tabernacle. Why would that be significant in heaven? Well, very much like it was when God gave Moses a pattern of the original tabernacle and said, make the tabernacle like the pattern I showed you on the mount. Here in 1 Chronicles, David has a pattern that shows an order and a dignity and an elevating of the value of every single worshiper in the future kingdom because even in Israel, the 24 was a representative number representing all the worshipers of Israel. So in heaven, 24 golden-crowned elders encircling the throne give us a glimpse at what it means that every child of God who first to know him can personally say, as Ephesians 1, 7 did, that I was accepted in the beloved and have received the redemption through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of my sins. We're the ones who can say, in the words of Psalm 107, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he's redeemed from the hand of the enemy. In concentric circles, the 24 elders, the rainbow as an emerald, and the seraphim, the living creatures, in indescribable, in indescribable splendor. So when we, when we think about how impactful this must have been for John, then it kind of brings us to the awareness that this circular rainbow around the throne, a halo really, because when we see a rainbow, we only see at best the, the half. And here we have, you ever heard the expression, the half has not been told? <laughs> well, in heaven, the whole has been told. In heaven, the full rainbow, the encircling rainbow, the halo of God's promise encircles those who represent in eternity the lives of the redeemed. But it also gives us this understanding. And how much we need this today to be active worshipers to understand that what John saw reminds us that when we gripe and complain and wonder and fret over so much evil that we see reflected in the world that we meet with instantaneous news 24 hours a day, seven days a week, how much more if John needed to be jolted to see the one on the throne? See, we need to be reminded that God's justice is going to be arriving on earth, and it is a certainty. I'd like to ask you to say this with me. I'm sure of it. Would you say it? I'm sure of it. Say it again. I'm sure of it. You can be sure, as Psalm 97 tells us, that it is God's eternal justice that is being safeguarded and, and uh, anticipated in all that happens in and around the throne so that from the throne the flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder indicating this. And it brings us to this sea of glass. And I'd like you to look at, think of it like this, that uh, in this sea of glass, clear as crystal before the throne, we again have a vivid picture of how the encounter with God in worship reminds us 
of what we can't reach with our human strength. And that is, when we see, even at our best, even with our Bibles open and at our best open, when we look at what is wrong in the world around us, what is wrong in circumstances, even those over which we have some measure of control, and we look at it and say, it's not right. It's out of order. It's not supposed to be this way. Wait a minute. I made these five decisions. It should have led to a good outcome. And yet it didn't. And the incongruity of life in those troubled spaces causes us to sometimes wonder, am I seeing things right? And then we come with John. And we're invited with John in. Remember, we're invited. The readers are being invited in to this indescribably awesome scene of the surrounding celebration of eternity for the one who sits on the throne. And part of that scene is before the throne, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne, one on each side, those four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, as if for us to be told by God that he sees everything with infinitely infinite clarity. In fact, before the throne, it's infinitely clear as far as the eye can see. <laughs> so the living creatures leave us perplexed, don't they? They're puzzled, and they puzzled a lot of people. In fact, the living creatures, the seraphim, puzzled rabbis way back in centuries before the coming of Jesus. So there is evidence in the Talmud, the ancient compendium of writings of the rabbis of many generations, starting most likely at the time of Ezra. And in that Talmud, there are reflections of what were the what was the significance of these four these four living creature images, where we read in um, verse seven of Revelation four, the first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, the fourth like an eagle in flight. And among the rabbis, there was this belief that like the eighth psalm tells us, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that you created him? You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. The rabbis saw in this that the living creatures reflect the elevated dignity of Almighty God in his plan for his creation because the man, the man was the highest among all creatures, the most exalted. The eagle, the most exalted among the birds. The ox, the most exalted among domestic animals. And the lion, the most exalted among the wild beasts. And the, the rabbis marveled that these were God-created living creatures who reflect his ultimate glorious plan, and though they were of this elevated status and dominion and greatness, yet they're stationed below the chariots of the Holy Ones, of the Holy One in Ezekiel and in Revelation. Again, of course, the rabbis were writing from Ezekiel, but in Revelation we see not only were they under the chariots, but they were around the throne. So what we have then is 
a kind of a good, uh, maybe a, a good speculation from their writings, but an understanding that these seraphim, these mysterious living creatures, actually they're never called angels in the Bible. They are distinct from the angels. They're living creatures who have a particular and apparently in a uniquely distinctive role in, we might say, colloquially, being worship leaders. <laughs> they were demonstrating how worthy the Creator is for all that is reflected by the highest of His creation to be in awe of His majestic holiness. And if we understand that the word holy literally means to be set apart, distinct, separate, then even the living creatures could claim no holiness. Even they, holy by God's creation, but not holy as he is, not intrinsically holy. And as they sing their song, these, literally, the word means these burning ones, continuously aflame, singing, holy, holy, holy to the Lord, they show us that worship itself is so far greater than our feeble minds can understand that it just makes sense that we might, like them, be rapidly and vividly aware of how good it is to worship God. Very quickly, if we compare the vision of John of the seraphim and the, and the variation of what we see in Ezekiel's vision, an artist's rendering of that is quite fascinating there, where this artist took that uh, vision of the seraphim in Ezekiel's vision and showed them with flaming torches and wheels within wheels rapidly moving. That ancient painter was trying as faintly and imperfectly as any human can to try to convey what can't even be described adequately in human words. And yet, and yet, when Ezekiel saw them, he said the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. What else could we draw from that? What could we draw from that other than the, the fact that, that uh, Hebrews 1.14 says these flames of fire do his bidding? We see the speediness of the response of these living creatures, and it causes us to realize how God's presence can affect us, make us quick to respond with gratitude to who he is. But I think even more so, the, the seraphim show us the transcendence of God. Now, I'm going to wrap this up in about three minutes, but I want to tell you, this is one of the things that grabs us so much about this whole chapter. And it's one of the reasons that I think the church today needs an awakening, a real awakening to what real worship is. And it is that we can get locked in a tight-bound, earth-bound, and very much self-as-the-canvas attitude in which how we gauge what worship is is much dependent upon how we feel about our circumstances, how we feel about how we're being treated, how we feel about our prospects. And when we do that, oh God in his tender loving mercy, I believe God uses so many things to draw us to worship. His tenderness toward us is fascinating. But the scene of this transcendence is needed because we don't think in transcendent terms. We think in terms of my box, 
my world, my perspective, my preferences, my tastes, my experience here. And as good as our experiences may be, I can tell you some of my experiences with God when I go back and I say, wow, I can remember that like that was yesterday. And yet it doesn't feed me today. What I need is him. I don't need an experience, though I'm grateful for my experience. But what I need is the God, the one, would you say the one, seated on the throne. And of course, this is why, this is why in so many different ways we can see from these texts that God is showing us in Scripture that what we have in, in the Lord is this, is this call that gets indelibly planted within us that we too, like the four living creatures, like the elders, can sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning my song shall rise to thee, holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. My prayer is that we would leave with a distinctly God-oriented orientation to his majesty, with a stirring anticipation for the service that each worshiper may give. Because when the casting of crowns is shown, it is response to the leadership of the living creatures. The living creatures are surrounding the throne, and when they give glory and honor and thanks to him, then the elders lay down their crowns. So for us, we have a model. We have a model that as timeless and indescribably powerful as that is, that there's never a day in your life when you are lacking in the worshipful, in the worship offering. I want to encourage you to see that this response to God can be injected into some of the most common and difficult parts of your day. I want to bring my worship to him because stand to your feet with me and would you say with me, you are worthy. Would you say that? You are worthy. Let's say it again. You are worthy. Lord, as we sing a song and go today, I pray that both the simplicity of lifting a song to you could take on new significance in our lives. Even a song we know, I have known for a long time, but also the songs that we learn, the new songs. And, and Lord, I pray that in a new way, we might take to heart the reality that worship is a costume you give us for every day. It is not only a command that we enter into worship, it is also an indescribably ever-present accessible blessing. And I pray by your Spirit that a new captivation with the reality 
that you're on the throne would energize and enrich our worship today. In Jesus' name, amen.